This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week. From Canberra on Ngunnawal Country, I'm Melissa Clark. Plenty of Australians have strong opinions about the Reserve Bank. The fact that they misled everyone and said that nothing was going to happen for, you know, and then all of a sudden whack and, what is it, 10 raises? It's sort of a bit disappointing, I suppose, that they they didn't have a better handle on it and foresaw what was going to happen. I mean, living in a home should be a right and it is now a privilege. Now we've got a sense of the opinion of the federal government, which has given its in-principle agreement to 51 recommendations from a review into Australia's central bank. This is about learning from the past to strengthen the Reserve Bank for the future. And my goal here throughout is a world-class central bank which is more effective, more transparent and more independent, calling on more expertise to make its important decisions. The changes are aimed at making the Reserve Bank better informed when it makes decisions to change or not change the official cash rate, which flows onto interest rates that retail banks offer. There'll be fewer meetings held each year to decide interest rate movements and perhaps most crucially, remove the power to set rates from the bank's board and transfer that role to a new panel of experts. So what will the changes mean for Australians who keenly follow interest rate movements, whether it's because of their mortgage repayments or earnings on their savings? Zach Gross is a lecturer in economics at Monash University and has previously worked for the Reserve Bank as an economist. When the review was first floated as a possible idea, the main criticism of the RBA was that inflation was too low and the unemployment rate was too high. And this was before the pandemic, uh, and it was an ongoing problem that was holding the Australian economy back. Of course, fast forward to today, and we've got the exact opposite problem. Uh, Inflation is too high, uh, and if anything, uh, the unemployment rate might be too low, if that's that's possible. So we've seen a combination of mistakes made by the RBA in both directions, running the economy too hot and too slow. Uh, But the underlying problem was that the RBA board wasn't making monetary policy in a sound way. And so regardless of which mistakes were being made, uh, there was plenty of scope for improving the, the process by which those decisions were being made. And so that's why we got the review in the first place. It's a bit hard to divorce the very present circumstances from this review, even though there's a lot more going into it, in particular Philip Lowe's comments about interest rates not being expected to rise until 2024, when, of course, we've now had a a succession of very quick and rapid rate rises since then. And the review did look at that moment in particular, which has become a bit of a a lightning rod, I guess, of frustration towards the RBA recently. Yeah, I I think that particular mistake was, I guess, in in some ways a very obvious mistake that everybody can agree was a a poor uh, decision. Uh, And that's because they sort of gave this strong guidance and then ultimately had to backtrack it. And that's something that I think anybody, even if you don't have a mortgage yourself, can acknowledge was uh, not great from a policy point of view. And the review does go into a lot of detail about that mistake. They, you know, investigate it, how did it happen, what were the steps that lead up to the decision to make the promise and then ultimately backtrack from that promise. And what they find is that... Uh, there was actually no written advice to the board suggesting that this sort of three-year forward guidance was a good idea. And in fact, 
previous advice on this topic had warned that it's actually quite risky because if the economy changes, you might have to backtrack, which unfortunately turned out to be exactly what happened. So I think this was a classic example of something where everyone can agree, at least ex post, that it was a mistake. But if you look at what the board was reading at the time, uh, they were warned that it was potentially a risky thing to do, but yet they chose to do it anyway. So I think that's a classic example of perhaps why we needed this review. Uh, and hopefully, I think quite a few of these recommendations might try and stop this mistake from happening in the future. So one of the big recommendations is that there will be two boards now. Can you explain how this would work? So in essence, they're taking the existing board and taking that interest rate setting uh, power and devolving it to a committee of experts, perhaps called a a monetary policy committee. So you'll still have the the board in charge of the overall direction of the Reserve Bank, much like most institutions and organisations have a a board setting the overall strategic direction. But the actual nitty-gritty of how the cash rate goes up or down, that'll be decided by a group of expert economists, some internal to the bank and some external to the bank to try and uh, keep things fresh and prevent groupthink from taking over. And the idea is that by uh, separating these two bodies, you can have two groups of people that are dedicated to these two very different tasks. One is organisational management and one is monetary policy. And for a long time, we've had the same body do both tasks and uh, perhaps that hasn't worked out uh, as well as we might hope. Hopefully, with two separate bodies, we'll have better outcomes. And it seems from the review, it's not just who is making the decisions on official cash rate movements, but how willing or or perhaps how able they are to interrogate the information that's before them and to challenge the Governor of the Reserve Bank and their point of view. How important is that sort of cultural change when it comes to decision-making for interest rates? Look, I I think that culture of having active debate about potential alternatives is a really important one. One thing that the review discusses is not only was the board not really capable or willing or able to push back on the governor because they lacked the expertise, but there was a culture of not questioning the decisions made by the leadership of the RBA from the bottom, from the staff members who were uh, working at the RBA. And so part of the problem is that you you had decisions that were being made by the governor, the deputy governor and his leadership team, but they weren't being questioned either by the board or by the staff. And so when mistakes were being made, there was no one to really push back on the possibility that they might be a bad idea and they would sail through relatively unopposed. Uh, And so not only do we need to reform the RBA at the top and and make sure that we have uh, a board that's able to push back and ask hard questions of the proposals coming out of the RBA, but we need to have a staff that are more actively discussing uh, potential alternatives so that we have both accountability at the top and bottom of the RBA. One of the recommendations of the review is to have fewer meetings each year. We currently have 11 a year. It's recommended going to eight. What difference would that make? So I think this is about a bit of a trade-off between quality and quantity. At the moment, we have a lot of board meetings, 11 a year. That's very high compared to other central banks. But I would say in terms of what we get out of those board meetings is not very much. We get sort of a one-page statement on how the economy is going, which is more or less a, a carbon copy most months from what, what was published the last month. Uh, and we don't get a press conference. We don't get uh, an update in forecasts or or anything like that. So I think the uh, switch towards having only eight meetings a year, which is what most other central banks do, should come about with an increase in the amount of work that goes into each meeting. So you have the meeting and then you have a longer discussion of 
what uh, the board is considering and a longer discussion of where the state of the economy is and a press conference after each of the meetings. Uh, I think Phil Lowe was reluctant to do 11 press conferences a year. Um, uh, I'm not sure if... Uh, I can't blame him as a journalist. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I'd love it, yeah. but uh, I can't blame him well, for I, avoiding I, I it. I suspect uh, politicians would, uh, would look at 11 a year and think that's uh, not too high a workload. But, um, but maybe with eight meetings a year, that might become, I guess, a more feasible uh, expectation. It is hard to imagine how the impact of these changes will materialise. Some of these things are quite intangible, but do you consider that these changes, uh, once they're all adopted and implemented, is the outcome of this better decision-making? Look, that's the hope. Uh, and it's always impossible to sort of know, you know, what the what economy the uh, Australia will have in the future and uh, the challenges that the, the RBA will face down the line. But I think one thing we can all agree on is that having a sounder basis for discussing those issues and coming to a conclusion about policy uh, is, you know, going to be better than having the current ad hoc uh, approach where a lot of power rests in the governor's hands and there isn't uh, only limited oversight. So you, you can never know for certain if this is going to, you know, change the way we operate the economy, but. I'm hopeful that a more robust process will lead to better outcomes in the long run, and that'll mean fewer recessions uh, and fewer inflationary outbreaks, uh, and that's ultimately going to be a good thing for Australian households. The Reserve Bank, Governor Phil Lowe, has said he would like to stay on in the job. Does that make it more difficult for the Albanese government not to reappoint him for a second term? Look, I think the fact that this review has not only strong support from the government, but strong support from the opposition and from economists around the country mean that one of the core jobs of whoever the next governor is, is to make sure that all 51 recommendations get implemented and implemented in full. Now, I think that'll be a sort of a key metric by which Jim Chalmers decides on who will be appointed as the, the next governor of the RBA. Um, and I think it's an open question as to whether Phil wants to or, or agrees with these recommendations enough to implement them. So it, it's certainly a question. Jim Chalmers is uh, not committed one way or the other, but that will be something that he's keeping uh, in mind when he when he comes to make that decision later in the year. Zach Gross is a lecturer in economics at Monash University. Defamation cases across two continents have turned into a staggering settlement and a strategic retreat. It's been quite the week for the Murdochs. Let's go to some breaking news in the United States. Just moments ago, there's been a huge development in the Fox News defamation case. A settlement has now been reached. The judge has dismissed the jury and said that the two parties have come to an agreement, have resolved their issues. It started in the US when Fox News settled a defamation lawsuit from Dominion Voting Systems over its reporting of the 2020 presidential election. The voting machine maker alleged the cable network had promoted false news stories that Dominion rigged its machines against Donald Trump. Just days later, Fox Corporation chief Lachlan Murdoch dropped his defamation proceedings here in Australia against online news outlet Crikey. That case also related to Donald Trump and the 2020 election. Paul Barry is the host of ABC's Media Watch and author of Breaking News, Sex, Lies and the Murdoch Succession. 
Well, Lachlan Murdoch was suing Crikey for essentially saying that he was an unindicted co-conspirator with Donald Trump in inciting the Capitol riots. And that was always going to be something very difficult for Crikey to defend. Defamation in this country, it's much easier for plaintiffs to win than it is in America. And I would think Lachlan had an extremely good chance of winning. So it's very good news for Crikey. And I must say at this point, I am a a very small shareholder in Crikey. It's also, I guess, good news for me. But it's very good news for Crikey that this this has been put away. So both sides were prepared to fight this out in court. So what's happened to prompt this? Well, the Murdochs have just settled this massive case in the States between Fox News and Dominion on the steps of the court for an absolutely eye-watering amount of money, $1.2 billion Australian or nearly $800 US, which is only half what was being sought and um, without any action in the case at all. So it's just a complete surrender. And they've done that, I think, because firstly, they were going to lose the case because it was clear that they were spreading lies. The judge had said that they couldn't use the First Amendment, which is free speech defence, to defend themselves. And um, they were going to have to have parade Rupert Murdoch and a whole bunch of Fox hosts on the stand. And it was likely to be a bloodbath. And they were likely to get, in my view, annihilated. So to settle is was a sensible thing to do. And having settled that huge case, I would have thought the last thing they want is to run a very similar case in Australia, where Crikey was saying it was going to use the evidence from the Fox case in the States to, to, in its own defence, so that they faced it all happening here again on a much smaller scale. So let's take a bit of a step back and, and look at that case in the US. Uh, what was Dominion arguing? After the 2020 election, when Donald Trump claimed that it had been stolen from him, his lawyers, led by Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, claimed that it was Dominion's voting machines that had basically been hacked or had been designed to steal votes from Trump and give them to Biden. It was an absolutely absurd and ridiculous claim, and there was not a scrap of evidence for that, and the people at Fox knew that, as the court revealed, and yet Fox as a network decided that it would let these these lies be spread and it would give airtime to Powell and Giuliani regularly and to let some of its hosts endorse those lies. And it did so basically because what it discovered was that when it was trying to push the truth to its audience, the truth the audience didn't want it. And the audience was was um, migrating to another couple of right-wing cable networks, One America Network and, and Newsmax. And Fox was losing its audience and panicking. And so it thought, we need to spread these lies to, to maintain the bottom line. And that's what it did, basically. It took that very cynical decision to allow the lies to be spread for money. The court case has made that very clear. Some of the documents that have been released, as you say, show that uh, Fox News knew that this information was incorrect and was being used nonetheless. Do you think that now that those documents that show this are in the public domain, is that embarrassing for Fox News? Or is this the reality of uh, the US media landscape, which is quite partisan? Will this damage the reputation of Fox News? Uh, what sort of reputation does Fox have? I mean, what one side thinks uh, the sun shines out of its orifice, and that's its main, you know, its audience. And the other side thinks they're a complete bunch of nutjobs. And so I don't think it's really going to change... Fox's reputation in in the American landscape. I mean, I think we already, those who already have taken a view on Fox knew that Fox was was crazy and prepared to spread things that weren't true. And the people who who watch Fox, um, they don't, I, I suspect, know much about this court case anyway, because Fox hasn't really reported it. And they also wouldn't believe it. 
Given the size of this settlement, do you think that might have an influence on the conduct of Fox News or, or the Murdochs, another part of, of their media empire more broadly, to avoid facing settlements of, of this size, even if the audience isn't compelling them to change their approach? Does money make them change their approach? I think the first thing to say is that $800 million to Dominion is not going to be the end of it. There's another voting machine company called Smartmatic, which is suing for 2.7 billion US dollars and would seem to have at least as good a chance. So add that to the bill. And then there are shareholder actions that are being lined up against the directors of Fox for letting all this happen. Maybe add another 100 or 2 million, 200 billion dollars to the bill. Is it going to change the way in which Fox goes about its business? I don't think it is because these cases will only get up or have only got up because a company has been defamed and, and has been able to go to court and say, look, we have been damaged by, by the lies that you've been spreading. If you take away those companies and Fox doesn't in future finger a particular company when it spreads lies like this, it's not going to have a problem. There's no media regulator in the state who's going to say, hey, 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 you're not allowed to do that. There's no law that says you're not allowed to spread lies. It's only if you target a particular company and defame their reputation or a person that you become liable. And so all Fox has to do in future is keep the names out of it. That's a fairly depressing outlook when uh, I think there perhaps had been some hope that this is a bit of a win for the media, that uh, a lie has been declared as such um, and or acknowledged as such, I suppose, uh, a reminder that you can't get away with it. But perhaps that's a bit rosy-eyed uh, from me <laughs> going by your comments there. Um, look, I, I'm sure it will have some, some effect somewhere, um, but I, do, I don't think it's... I don't think it's a sort of massive victory for um, for truth in the media in, in in terms of in the long run. It's a it's a small victory, but I don't think it's going to change the way in which the war is being fought. Because as I say, there's no regulator in that country, and and defamation is very very hard to to get up. And so. I don't think it's going to really change the way they do business because their audience wants them to say these things and they're, in a way, captive to that audience. It's interesting you describe that about the defamation laws in the US. It's quite different here in Australia. How do you see the balance between someone bringing about a defamation case and a a respondent? How is that balance of power here in Australia? I think the balance of power is wrong in both uh, jurisdictions. I think in the States it's far too hard to sue for defamation because you have to prove actual malice, and that means you either have to know that you're spreading lies or you have to be recklessly indifferent to the truth. Here, I think it's far too easy to sue for defamation and the, the media get muzzled because even though something may be true, you can go to court and the judge or the jury can decide that what you've said in the article actually means something totally different that you cannot defend. And it's also incredibly difficult to defend truth in a court because the standards that the judges apply are so high. Judges don't like the media in this country. And defamation is, in my view, a curse on on the media in this country and it makes, makes its life very difficult. Paul Barry is the host of Media Watch and author of Breaking News, Sex, Lies and the Murdoch Succession. Your next car might be an electric car. But even if you're keen to embrace a greener driving future, you might find the cost of electric cars and hybrids just too expensive. And there's just not that many options in Australia. The Albanese government wants to change that with its release of an electric vehicle strategy to drive the take-up of battery-powered transport. It's years overdue for Australia. Uh, We've wasted a decade. We have not now a moment to waste, and so we're getting on with the job. 
Climate change minister Chris Bowen said a key plank of the strategy will be introducing a fuel efficiency standard, which would require car makers to meet set emissions limits for the entire fleet of cars and utes they sell in Australia. At the moment, Russia and Australia are the only two developed nations in the world without fuel efficiency standards. Uh, well, I've got cautious support for it. What I am pleased to see that they're going to, their proposal is to have a mandatory standard because if it's voluntary, well, of course, no one would pay attention to that. University of New South Wales researcher Dr Gail Broadbent has a focus on electric vehicle policymaking in Australia. She believes a mandatory fuel emission standard is the only way to encourage manufacturers to make more battery-powered vehicles available for sale. How it works is that if you have a mandatory vehicle fuel emissions standard, it is set by the authorities that across an entire brand, let's say VW or Toyota or whatever, across their entire brand, all the cars they sell, now let's say they sell 10,000 cars in a year, the vehicle emissions of CO2 per kilometre, grams of CO2 per kilometre that each car emits, they add them all up for all the different models that they have, they add it up and then average it out and then they see if it will meet the standard. If it's below the standard, everything's fine. But if it's over the standard, then uh, it would attract a fine. With a mandatory standard, I think you need to have one that's the same as Europe because if you don't have it the same as Europe, all the European brands that people like to buy here, the suppliers of those would preference sending them to Europe because the fine is quite large there for any overstepping the standards. And unless we have the same standard here and the same level of fines, well, then a cheaper option for any supplier would be to send us the cars that are not as good because they'd rather avoid the fines in Europe than avoid them here. The government's committed to introducing these standards, but not what they'll be or when they'll start. It's going to consult on that. Uh, have we already had mm. consultations on this process, though, given that Labor had gone to the industry asking about whether to adopt fuel efficiency standards? Is another round of consultations necessary? Well, I can see what they're trying to do. We had the consultations back at the end of last year and, you know, I, like many others, uh, you know, more than 500 submissions from many, many people putting all their points of view. And But now what they're trying to do is to try and work out how best to implement it. And they're giving various options for whether you go hard and fast and try and get electric vehicles in here faster or whether you take it easy and go more slowly. And to that end, you actually have to ask yourself, what is the aim of the government here? Is the aim to reduce our emissions? And if so, that's a great thing because there's a budget of emissions that our country can emit. And if you wait till one minute to midnight at 2049 to implement every change, then you've missed the boat. It's already too late. So we have to go as hard and as fast as we can because cars last about 20 years. And if we don't get the change is implemented and well and truly implemented by 2030, it is too late and we will never reach net zero by 2050 because that's only 20 years after that. And there'll be still fossil fuel vehicles hanging about creating problems. At the end of the day, uh, cars are still too, electric vehicles still just too expensive 
for most drivers at this stage and in oh. between now and the next five years? Well, it, that is true. They are too expensive for most people, and that is because most people don't buy new cars. So all these rules only apply to new vehicles. So people who are hanging out for an electric vehicle but they know they can't afford a new one of any type, whether it was a cheap one or an expensive one, because there are many people in our community who would only spend $10,000, $15,000 on a car and you're not going to get any kind of new car at that price. So what they're waiting for is the electric vehicles. You know, they want to do the right thing and they're waiting for electric vehicles to be on the second-hand market. And the only way you're going to get that to have a, um, a large second-hand market is to get as many vehicles bought as early as possible. And we can do that by government departments buying, you know, their procurement policies being that they have to buy electric. Think, yeah, I think there's or, some incentives or, in the broader strategy for fleet purchases mm, to try and build that second-hand absolutely. market. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And that is the way to get the people who aren't going to be buying new cars because it's more than half the people and, you know, they're just waiting to be able to do the right thing. They're just waiting for the price to come down so they can buy a second-hand vehicle. The other thing the government has to do is, of course, install as many recharges as possible wherever they're needed. What else can the federal government do to speed up that take-up of electric vehicles? Is that charging network crucial to getting people to oh, adopt? Absolutely. It is Absolutely crucial. Uh, we did modelling last year and without support for the installation of a, a really good network where you've got, um, there's two types of charge. You've got the fast charges that are useful for intercity travel and you've got what they call destination charges. And, and the destination charges are at shopping centres or in the streets where suburbs where people don't have off-street parking and you need one charger for every 10 EVs that are sold and you need one fast charger on the big highways uh, for every 100 EVs that are sold because most people do most driving in local areas and, and they will recharge, generally speaking, as near as possible to their home as they can. So you need to make sure there's enough around so that people can charge when they need to. Looking more long-term, if we get to the point where the majority or getting close to all of the Australian light vehicle car market is electric vehicles, and we see that replicated mm. around the world, we often hear claims that mm. there isn't going to be enough of the rare metals of the lithium to support that level of penetration of electric vehicles in the market. Is, is that an accurate concern? I don't think so. I mean, yes, at the moment, they're lithium batteries and, you know, Australia's in a lucky position. We have quite a lot of it. And we do re rely on that for our phones and our laptops and all of those sorts of things. But it can be recycled. It's very successfully recycled. And the government has just supported a recycling venture so that we can have recycling here in Australia to recover those minerals. But what you have to remember, there's a lot of research going on into battery technology trying to find the cheapest options with the best outcome as far as energy density is concerned. So 
that's a really moving thing all the time. And so, yes, it's true in the medium term. Yes, there's, you know, the need for a lot of lithium. But in the longer term, they will find other solutions. And, and I think with the recycling, I think it is possible to satisfy the needs that we will have in the future. Dr Gail Broadbent from the University of New South Wales. And that's the episode for this week. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe. This week is produced by Madeline Jenner, Nick Grimm, Sam Dunn and me, Melissa Clark. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.